Salvation is not the story of the saved, but of the Savior. In other words, the story of Genesis is not the story of Abram, but that of Yahweh. It is not the story of Adam, but the story of Christ. It is his story from beginning to end. And all the other actors simply add up to one thing. The story of God. He, the Lord God of heaven, is the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. This is his story from beginning to end of him achieving his ends for the sake of his great name. The book, then, is not the story of Nehemiah or even Nehemiah's exploits, but instead the story of Nehemiah's God, using a faithful and willing individual to accomplish his ends. God himself is the invisible hand moving this story forward to its completion, at work in the life of Nehemiah, and at work in the lives of you and me. So my hope in this sermon today is to lift up the name of God, to draw attention to Him, and say that His character and His covenant are our only hope. And because of His character and because of His covenant, therefore we have hope. And if you want your prayers to be heard, you must approach it in that way. In other words, you have to connect it, your prayers, to the covenant. God's mercy and his character, his, his covenant and his mercy are our only appeal. Not our merit, but his mercy. The way I'm going to move through that theme then in today's section is basically I want to do two things. I'm going to stack up um, for comparison for today's sermon the Old Testament God, that is the God Yahweh, Israel's great and awesome God, the covenant keeper God, against the New Testament, New Covenant revelation of that God, Jesus, our great and awesome God, our covenant keeper. And basically I want to communicate that his character and his covenant are our only hope. Therefore, you have to connect it to the covenant, whether you live in the Old Testament or the New Testament, in order for your life to be effective, for your prayers to be heard, for the realization of God to be manifested in you, you must connect it to the covenant. Therefore, I'm going to approach it in three different steps. And basically like this, I'm going to look at their predicament and our predicament. And I'm going to ask the same question of each. And I'm going to say, okay, uh, if we want to get out of this situation, probably the best way to do so is ask, well, first of all, where are we? Second of all, how did we get here? And then third, how do we get out? And I'm going to do that for Old Testament Israel. And then I'm going to do that for us, New Testament church, in the same way. The way I'd like to begin then is um, by going back to the very beginning to answer those questions. If you say, how do we get here? Um, There's obviously a number of different events leading up to this point. So too in your life, if you go to a small group or a life group or something like that, one of the first steps that uh, the curriculum will often have you take is to share your spiritual journey or your life story. And what that does for the participants is it, it moves them 
to see how God is at work in the lives of these individuals. They may see individual stories or individual pieces, and they don't exactly see how it all adds up or how the dots connect. But then when the person tells this linear progression of a story, the other people are able to see, wow, look, that is so cool how God has led you up until this point. I imagine that's the same way it is for us with a lot of Bible stories. You know, we go to science school and it's like, okay, Noah and the ark and then the law and then there's some prophets and some kings and blah, blah, blah. And you're like, whoa, David and Goliath and where and who? Well, all of this is intentional because God is moving this people group along this path, this spiritual journey to get them to a certain point. So today what we're doing is we're moving from the New Testament, the New Covenant, those stories about stewardship and all in, Back to the Old Testament. And in order to help you make that leap, I want to connect the dots along the way. So let me show you 10,000 years of history in the next 10 minutes. And we'll see how we can do. Uh, Hopefully, I think it'll be quick. Watch the slides and this will show you. And this will get you right to where we are at at the very end of the Old Testament in the book of Nehemiah. This is basically the end. After this, there's silence and then Christ. So we've come a long way if you're an Israelite up until this point. As you know, more than likely, God gave the Israelites what is known as the law. Now, sometimes we call this the Old Testament, but of course the the biblical version of the Old Testament contains more than law. It also contains the writings and the prophets as well. But the law is the covenantal agreement or the stipulations, the legal ways in which God will relate to his people. So what he does is he raises up a nation, he takes them into slavery, and then he brings them out. And as you see in this slide, what happens is they're in the land of Egypt, and then God brings them across the Red Sea, and then shortly thereafter, as they're in the wilderness, he gives them the law, the covenant, the agreement that will govern their interactions between God and humanity. Now, this is what that law says. This is the basic summary of it. You know, there's the Ten Commandments and there's a lot of other stuff. But here's the general idea. In Deuteronomy chapter 4, God says to them, you know, I'm taking you across this peninsula. I'm taking you into the promised land. Now, here's how things are going to go. If you act corruptly by doing what is evil in the sight of the Lord your God, You will soon utterly perish from the land that you're going over the Jordan to possess. You will not live long in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the peoples, and you will be few in number among the nations where the Lord God will drive you. Stop. Pause. That's where Nehemiah is hundreds of years later. This is the reality of their situation right now spread across Persia as exiles. They have acted corruptly. God has been faithful to his covenant. He did what he said he would do. You disobey, you get in trouble, I punish you. Thank you, God. This is what he did. So they're scattered. But God gives them a way out. Verse 29, he says, But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him. And if you search after him with all your heart, and with all your soul, this is what Nehemiah does in chapter 1, When you're in tribulation and all these things come upon you in the latter days, you will return to the Lord your God and obey his voice. For this is the character and covenant of your God. Here it is. 
The Lord your God is a merciful God. That's his character. He will not leave you or destroy you or forget the covenant with your fathers that he swore to them. Here's the deal, folks. This is the way things are going to go. This is how we operate. Obey, you will be blessed. Disobey, you will be punished. And we see this throughout the life of Israel as they go up and down through various stages of you know, success and rebellion, back and forth, back and forth. And God is always patient, but faithful and consistent as well. And so you see things like um, the judges who come into the land and they're a mess and they make a horrible mess. And then there's Saul and then there's King David. Here's a picture or a statue of an artist's rendition of King David. King David... Uh, besides Christ, Israel's greatest king in all of their history, unites the kingdom, builds it up, follows after God, and then he has a son. His son, however, is a bit different than him. His son has been well-positioned to rule, so he's able to make this incredible building, but despite having built the temple, his heart is divided. Which, by the way, sub-note, just because you build a big building doesn't mean your heart is following after God. So he builds this incredible temple and his heart is divided and therefore, towards the end of his life, he worships the idols of his wives and gives in to sin and idolatry and has a miserable end. His son, who comes after him, continues that pattern and through his chicanery and um, poor politics, he increases taxes, is unsympathetic to his people, and as a result, divides the kingdom. Now, you know, a house divided against itself will not stand, and such is the case with the nation of Israel. The northern kings are rebellious and idolatrous in general, and consequently, God, faithful to his covenant, consistent with his word, sends in the foreign invaders to judge them. The first kingdom that he raises up is the kingdom of Assyria. They come in, they ransack the north, they come in like a horde of sweeping lions, they mow down the people and then they carry off tribute and then they force the kings of Israel like Jehu to bow in submission to the kings of Assyria. Now, Assyria conquers most of the world but for this one little itty bitty tiny pink spot in the middle of Israel called Judah. That is where the good king Hezekiah is hanging out and refusing to to bow down to the foreign gods. Isaiah the prophet is encouraging him and saying, look, there's this guy named Cyrus. He's going to come and he will be my servant. Well, Hezekiah hangs out. He resists. But eventually, um, Hezekiah is gone and his son Manasseh, who is worse than any king in the history of Israel, comes in after him and the Lord is forced with no choice whatsoever to go in and judge them. And therefore, you have the kingdom of Babylon which indeed does conquer that entire region, including Judah and Jerusalem in 586 B.C. So the people are deported, and that's where you get these great stories of exile like Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, all those stories of heroism in a foreign land. That's in this time period. Now, after Babylon, another kingdom comes. That's the kingdom of Persia. And Persia conquers Babylon, but they don't continue the deportation policies. Instead, there's a strange king who just happened to be named Cyrus. 
as Isaiah said, who allows the people to return. And therefore, there's basically a three-staged return. The first is under Zerubbabel. That's in the book of Ezra. And then second is under Ezra the priest. Ezra is leading the spiritual reform of the people. And that is where we land now in the book of Nehemiah. Some of the people have been allowed to go home under the uh, decree of Cyrus, the Persian king. And some of the people are still living in exile and haven't made it back yet. Here we stand now at the end of the Old Testament in this historical book by the name of Nehemiah. So then, Nehemiah serves under King Artaxerxes, and he, Artaxerxes, and he is cupbearer to the king. Now, the reason I walk you through that is not just to um, delight the historical buffs in the congregation, but is to intentionally place things in the covenantal context. Because if you do not do that, then this book completely loses its meaning and becomes impotent. Nehemiah's prayer is based on his covenant. God's work, God's action are all based on his covenant. So if this is not in that context, it's just a wash. But because of the covenant, there's this deep, rich, theological, and indeed relational interaction between God and his people. And what you learn is what I'm trying to express, is that God's character that you see in this and his covenant is their only hope. Their only hope is not their great military strength, intellectual wisdom, or spiritual capabilities. They've all demonstrated those are no good. But because of God and who he is and the promises he made, then these people have hope. So why is that important to us? Well, for the same reason, you know. We'd like to think we're great and we're amazing we do everything right, but the reality is it is not our intellect or our wallets or our power or anything else, but it is only God and His character and His covenant which provides us hope. Therefore, in order for our prayers to be heard, we have to connect them to the covenant. Let us then see how Nehemiah does this in chapter 1. Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in the first verse, it goes like this. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read the first three and then I'm going to just tweak, tweak your understanding just a little and then we'll go through the rest. So Nehemiah chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. It says this. The words or the memoirs of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, that's November, December, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel. Susa in Persia is like the Arizona of the United States. This is the place you go in the wintertime. <laughs> this is where you get away from the cold. You don't want to be there in the summer, but it's a great place to be in the winter. Here is the summer palace, Susa, the citadel. Now, this is where Nehemiah is. And it says that Hananiah... Han and I, one of my brothers, we're not sure if it's actually biological or just um, family uh, like children of Israel, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. 
and its gates are destroyed by fire. Now, I'll put this in context a little bit for you. What this would be, see, that didn't affect you emotionally at all, but what this would be is like if you were reliving the events of September 11th. And you're going throughout your day, and all of a sudden the news comes on, right? News is delivered here. And you think it's a normal day, and all of a sudden you look, and two of the biggest symbols of our entire nation, economy, and all of us are burning, crumbling. People are jumping from them, and they're falling to ruins. And you're just like, oh, wow, what? What is going on? This is not good. And then you hear that they got the Pentagon and things are in chaos and nobody knows what's happening and you are just like, this is a mess. Oh, God help me. God help us. What is going on? This is the emotional impact or news that Nehemiah received. Jerusalem is the capital, the city of the great king, the hill of Uh, The city on the hill, the place where we look, where does our help come from? We look to the hills, to Jerusalem, to the temple, to the very embodiment of everything that the Jewish people believe and hold to be true. There is the shining symbol. What has happened? That symbol has been trashed and destroyed and profaned and mocked. And the invading Assyrians and Babylonians and others say, where is your God? He is a joke. He has left you and gone away. Where is your God who will deliver you? I don't see him. And Nehemiah stands there in shame because his pillars are broken down. He looks around and says, God, help. Help us. Everything's a mess. Lord, help. Then in verse 3, there's a beautiful assurance in a small little word. It's called the remnant. They said to me, the remnant has survived. That's an encouraging word to us as well, because I would encourage you that in our culture, although we are not the theocratic nation of Israel, we are not the new, new Israel, in our culture in the United States, we can share those feelings in a very real way. We look around us and we see the onslaught of immorality, of greed, of abortion, and countless other great societal ills. And we feel the sting and pain of death. We sense the reality of sin. And we watch the walls crumble and the nation fall. And we say, oh God, where are you? How could this happen? What is going on? And yet there is this gentle assurance that even in the midst of the chaos, even when it seems like you are surrounded by idolatry, pagan kings, foreign nations, and no sign of God, even then there is a remnant. And God is accomplishing His will through the lives of His faithful people. The gates of hell will not prevail against the church. God's kingdom will never end. And in this covenant we find hope, and in Nehemiah's covenant he finds hope as well. So based on his covenant, knowing that if he repents of his sin, although they are in exile, although they have sinned and are put justly there, the covenant clearly says that if we repent, you will bless us. 
And that is what he does. And so in verse 4, Nehemiah's prayer occurs. It says this, As soon as I heard these words, as soon as I got the news, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I continued fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. And I said, Oh, Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God, who keeps his covenant and steadfast love With those who love Him and keep His commandments, let your ear please be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing openly the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my own family, my father's house, have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, And the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. There's the covenant. Now, Lord, remember that covenant. Remember the word you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. That's what you said in Deuteronomy. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants, O Lord, and your people whom you have redeemed that would be out of Israel, out of Egypt, by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of the servants who delight to fear your name, that is the remnant, and give us success today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. Now, the way I'd like to walk you through this is like this. I want to start with the last phrase, and then I'll move up to the start again. The last phrase, I feel, is absolutely beautiful. When he says, now, I was cupbearer to the king. That's my job. Now, imagine for you, with me, if you will, this is an illustration, so it's completely hypothetical. Don't take this as literal. Um, that I was at a point in life where I decided I'm going to collect things. You know, we're at this stage in life, we've got nothing else to do, nowhere else to spend our money, whatever, we're just going to start collecting. Now, I don't think seashells, for me, if that's yours, it's okay, are interesting enough. I'm not into coins or baseball cards. Sorry, Pastor Chuck. And so what would I collect if I had the choice? And I decided, aha, I know I got it. This is it. If I had... You know, unlimited resources, unlimited time. This is what I wanted to just blow it on. Here we go. I think I would collect the jerseys, the real ones, the fancy-dancy ones that they hang in the glass, the real jerseys of the following people. Are you ready? Nick Novak, Josh Scobie, Greg Zerlane, Justin Tucker, and Steven Gostikowski. Yeah. you have any idea who I'm talking about? No, most of the people don't. Some people might. Raising your hand if you know who I'm talking about. Okay, who am I talking about? Kickers, that's right. Fantasy football fans, unite. I'm not one, but these are who they are. They're kickers. These are kickers. Names completely unknown to the majority of us. This is not the quarterback. This is not the guy on the Wheaties box or has the shoe commercial. These are the kickers. 
Now, no offense if you're a kicker, but let's be honest. Kickers? I mean, come on. They're just kickers, right? It's the little guy in the locker room who probably gets made fun of a lot and snapped by the towel all the time. Here's the kicker. Who wants to be the kicker? You know, there's the big linebacker. There's linemen. He looks like a football player. There's a quarterback. He leads the charge. There's a running back. He plows through and everyone cheers. There's a, there's a receiver and he catches the ball and slams it in the end zone and smacks his chest and does a dance. Woohoo! Go team! There's a coach. He gets interviewed afterwards. Who's the kicker? Who's the kicker? Oh, he's that one guy over there who you hope never comes in the game. Because <laughs> you want to have a lead so big, you're never going to need him. But on occasion, on rare occasion, there's that moment where there's no more time left. The game is tied. You're way out. And there's only one way. Bring in the kicker. <laughs> and here he comes. And they line up the ball. And everything's waiting on him. So here comes a snap. And he's like, And if it goes through the uprights, everyone cheers and they talk to the coach and the quarterback afterwards. And if it doesn't, he has to go into the witness protection program. Because he's the kicker. And no one cares about the kicker. But these guys have won Super Bowls. They're a big deal. But they are not the guys who call the shots. They're not the coach. They're not the quarterback. They're not getting interviewed or getting big deals. They're just the kicker. And what I think is so cool about that is this, is here in this story, we have Nehemiah stepping up and he's like, I am the kicker. Hoorah. You bet. I am the third string alternate who never gets a chance unless we're up 50 to nothing, but I am in the game. That's me. I think that's awesome. That is so cool because here's a guy who realizes who he is and he delights and he glories in it. He accepts God's position for him in life and says, whatever it is, I don't care. I will do it all for the glory of God. He hasn't made me the king of Persia. He hasn't made me the high priest. I'm not Moses or Aaron or Elijah or David or any of those great heroes from the history of Israel. I'm just the cupbearer. And you know what my job is? I get it first if someone's out to get the king. And I'm going to do it really well. I'm going to grab a big old cup and gulp it down and see what happens. So I'm the cupbearer to the glory of God. I think that is awesome. This guy rocks. Here is a man who says, I have no authority on and of myself but I'm going to do my job to the best of my abilities, to the glory of God. And it's so cool because as he does this, the king sees that in him. And as a result, the more and more the king sees it, the more and more the king trusts him with. And you see the king understanding the character of this guy. And as he notices this guy's character, this guy moves up. And he's still the cupbearer, but he's a trusted official now. The king is like, whoa, here's a real man who lives for God. I want to challenge you this morning. I don't know where you're at or where God has appointed you, but I want to say, hey, cupbearers, serve your king. Serve your king. I don't care what he's called you to do. Just grab it and go. Even if dodgeball is your spiritual gift. Serve your king. 
You may be first string, second string, third string, whatever. It doesn't matter. Just serve the king. Full out, 100%, pedal to the metal, all the way, serve the king. I don't know if you are the auto mechanic who fixes the car, the kindergarten teacher who wipes the noses, ties shoes, and tells them not to eat their boogers. I don't know if you're the account receivable person who is not the CFO, who does not have the salary, who sits in the cubicle, but instead knows where all the money is, is completely trusted with it. I don't know if you're the entry-level manager or if you're the assistant. Serve the king. You are the cupbearer. Serve the king. This is an important position that God has placed you in. Serve Him in it. You may not have the authority, but as you serve Him with integrity, you will have His respect. God puts you in a key position, but you must depend on God. That is what we see Nehemiah doing, saying, hey, look, I'm just a cupbearer, but I'm going to do it full bore, and I'm going to depend on God. And so this is the way it goes. He calls out to God and he says, Oh God, you are a great and awesome God. I don't have any control over this king, but you do. You could actually influence this guy. I can't. You do. Lord, you are awesome. You are terrible, awe-inspiring. People stand in fear of you. You are respected and you are wonderful. You are the great lion who is at the same time scary and good. Lord, this has been made clear throughout all of our history as you have delivered us from Egypt with your mighty outstretched hand, making a mockery of Pharaoh who pretends to do the same. You brought him down and each and every single one of his gods. Lord, even though you stand in derision here while we are in exile, we know that you are still the God of heaven. You are not the local deity of the land of Israel, but instead you are the universal king who none can dispute. You are God, and we expect you to ride forth in victory, because that's who you are. That is your character. Nations stand in awe of you. Mountains melt like wax before you. The earth sees and the ground trembles. Who is like our God? Lord, let your ear hear. Be attentive to the prayers of your servants. Where are we? We're in exile. Things are a mess. How did we get here? We sinned. We admit it. It's our fault, not yours. You're faithful to your covenant. You punished us when we disobeyed. That's part of the deal. We're sorry. Lord, help us out. We repent and we depend and rely upon you. Get us out. Get us out. Nehemiah chapter 1. To be continued next week. Nehemiah's story for chapter 1 ends here. Yours is not. In fact, yours is very similar. You are in a predicament as well. What is our predicament? Ephesians 2 verse 1 tells us, You're dead in your trespasses and sins carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and you are by nature children of wrath. Accurately said, sinners in the hands of an angry God. This is us and where we stand. 
How do we get there? Well, Romans tells us very clear that all of us have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And as a result, the wages are just penalty. The wages of sin is death. So that's where we're at. And that's how we got here. Now, how do we get out? Romans chapter 10, verse 9 says, If you confess according to the covenant with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you will be saved. For the new covenant is sealed by Jesus' precious blood and guaranteed by His resurrection. Our prayers will be heard and only heard if they go through Him. He is the one who has been promised. At the same time Cyrus was, so too was Christ. In the book of Isaiah, it says, For unto us a child is born, and unto us a son is given. And the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called the Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Luke then goes on to fulfill that and says, Look, you shall call this one the great and awesome God, the eternal, everlasting covenant keeper. His name is Jesus. And He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High and the Lord God will give Him the throne of His father David. Connecting the kingdoms and connecting the dots, He will reign over the house of Jacob forever and ever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. Earth and sky will flee from his presence. Even the wind and the seas will obey him. Who is like our God? His name is Jesus. He is the covenant-keeping God. As you pray, I entreat you, I beg you, I exhort you, yea, I command you, to pray in the name of Jesus according to His will and purpose. Through Him and Him alone, the God of heaven and earth, not the God of Christians, but the God who reigns above all other gods. In Him we live and move and have our being. And there is no one else. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets anywhere except through Him. And so we pray, just like Nehemiah. And we connect it to the covenant. We say things like Nehemiah did, confessing our sins, but we say, Lord, if we confess our sins, You are faithful and just to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You said that in Your covenant to us. We claim that. Lord, you said that on this rock you will build your church and the gates of hell will not prevail against her. Lord, we're in the church and we look around and we see the gates of hell raging against us every single day. They assault us from all sides. And in some ways it looks like she's diminishing. God, where is the remnant? May your church, may your word, may your power and truth go forth. Lord, we connect it to the covenant. Lord, you said that I should love my wife as Christ loved the church. And i got to admit, I'm nowhere close to that. I'm selfish. Lord, I like my dinner hot. You prayed and fasted for 40 days. 
God, how in the world can I do that? Lord, help me. Father, you said dads should not provoke their children to wrath, but raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Lord, my kids upset me sometimes. Help. How do I do that? Lord, you said no temptation has overtaken me that is not common to man. And you're faithful and you won't allow me to be tempted beyond my ability. But with each temptation, you'll provide a way out. Lord, show me that way out. Lead me not into temptation, but deliver me from the evil one. This is your covenant. This is my plea. This is how I pray. We connect it to the covenant. That is Jesus' commands to us in Matthew 6 and what we call the Lord's Prayer. Connect it to the covenant. And when you do, what's really cool about that, C.S. Lewis says it like this. He says, when you pray that way, C.S. Lewis says, I pray not because it changes God, but instead because it changes me. And when you pray the covenant, what you find is that as you pray, Lord, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, not my will but yours, then what happens is God's desires become your desires. And then you're welcome to pray your desires all you want. And He promises to give them to you because they're His. Because your heart has been aligned with His. And so as you pray, it changes you, it grows you, it develops you, and your desires go from what they were to what His are, and then they actually become. Because God is accomplishing His purpose in the lives of His people, according to His character and according to His covenant. Because He is the faithful and merciful God. And Jesus is our great high priest. Therefore, we go to Him via the covenant. Like the book of Nehemiah, God's character and covenant are our only hope. And what's so cool about it too is that like the book of Nehemiah, this is not the book of Midland Free. This is not the story of Jeremy Lobdell. This is in fact the story of our God. And the way it ends is like this, Philippians 2, At the name of Jesus every knee would bow. And as I look, I see a great multitude that no one can number. From every tribe, tongue, and nation, people gathered and standing before the throne of the Lamb, clothed in white, with palm branches in their hands, welcoming the King and crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And they fall with their faces before the throne, worshiping God, saying, Blessing and honor and glory and power and praise be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Father, you are good. There is none like you. This is not our story. This is yours. So God, in great humility and repentance, we admit we've come to this point. We are in exile. We are slaves to sin. And you are our only way out. We got us here, but you can deliver us. Lord, we recognize it's not in a building. It's not in leadership abilities. It is not in intellectual acumen. 
personal finance or anything else, but in you and you alone that we place our hope. Your covenant, your character, Lord God, this is our appeal. May your mercy and justice reign forth in the lives of your people from this moment on, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. I know I've had you up and down quite